This is Kyle Turley, and you're listening to Heads and Tails Podcast, where the helmets fly. Hi, my name is Riley Cote, I'm a former Philadelphia Flyer, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This is Neha Oberoi. I'm a former professional tennis player and co-founder of South Asians in Sports, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This is Casey Cochran, former UConn football quarterback. You're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Hi, I am Dr. Megan Cannon, sports psychologist with Mind of the Athlete. And I'm Erin Sparrow, sport nutritionist with Mind of the Athlete. And, and you, you are, are listening, listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. On September 5th, 2015, the Heads and Tails podcast was born. There have been a lot of ups and downs along the way, and I couldn't have gotten to the 100th episode alone. I want to first thank my girlfriend Lauren for pushing me and encouraging me to keep going at times when I wanted to quit and for never getting frustrated with me for spending every Sunday for the last two years editing audio and writing blog posts. Next, I want to thank my family and friends for all their support along the way and making the podcast what it is today. I also need to thank my guests because without you, there wouldn't be a podcast. Lastly, I want to thank all you loyal listeners out there. Your notes and letters of appreciation and encouragement make all the early mornings and late nights worthwhile. In the 100th episode, you will hear not only the evolution of the podcast, but also my own personal transformation and the key things I have learned along this journey that I hope you can apply to your life as well. Specifically, you will hear from high school football coach Lou Vanorski from episode 2, Green Beret Bill Anthes from episode 54, retired NFL linebacker David Labora from episode 53, and former Rutgers football player Eric Legrand from episode 47. But first, we start off with a track from our very first interview with Suzanne Barba, the athletic trainer who saved my life. Hi, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of the Heads and Tails podcast. This is your host, Kevin Som. Today's episode is with Suzanne Barba, the athletic trainer at Westmore Central High School for the last 32 years. And she's also the athletic trainer that saved my life in a high school football game about eight years ago. Uh, I just want to explain the name of the, the podcast first. So... Heads and tails, obviously there's a coin toss before every football game, and there's a, a chance that you can either win the coin toss or lose the coin toss, 50-50 shot. It's a similar idea uh, in life. You never really know what's going to happen to you, and everything that every you know choice that you make, there is a potential risk or consequence that comes with that. I had a really bad head injury in high school, so that's kind of where the, the heads part of the name comes in. And then also... The tails part, I'm spelling it T-A-L-E-S like you're telling a story. So I'm trying to use my story of my head injury and kind of the trials and tribulations that I went through uh, with that whole ordeal to hopefully be used as a catalyst for other people to share their stories of perseverance and inspiration to help other people who might be struggling at the time. So that probably wasn't the best explanation of, of the name of the Heads and Tails podcast. And I guess what I was trying to say is every football game starts with a coin toss, right? It's the first thing that happens. You either have heads or tails uh, if you're going to receive the ball or kick the ball. And you have no control over that that outcome, just like you don't have control over some of the things that happen to you in life. And in terms of my head injury, you know, I was given a 50% chance of surviving through the night, just like you have a 50% a chance of a coin landing on heads or tails. And obviously, I spelled the podcast with T-A-L-E-S uh, in the name to kind of show that we're telling stories. And my hope was that my story of perseverance from my head injury would be the catalyst for others to share their stories of perseverance and to inspire others listening to take control of over their adversity because you can't control what happens to you in life, but you can always control how you respond. 
Next, we hear more from episode one, and it really highlights how far I've come from a personal standpoint and how my thoughts have changed and my views have changed uh, since starting the podcast back in 2015. So I'll tell this part of the story. So okay. at least the day of the game, I I had been having headaches for a week from the, the previous game. So after the, the game the week before, we were playing Livingston, I suffered a concussion uh, from a helmet-to-helmet hit that wasn't really anything out of the ordinary for me. I finished the game. Um, I didn't really feel that bad during the game. I didn't really have any symptoms. It wasn't really until that night and then the previous morning that I really um, started feeling the symptoms, which was really just a severe headache to the point where it felt like my brain was bouncing inside my head. So I I was trying to be a tough guy, so I didn't really tell anyone that my head was hurting me. So I would practice the whole rest of the week. I didn't my coaches were even like making comments to me saying that I was like being soft and stuff like that. And I was because I was avoiding contact and I was a fullback and a linebacker. So my job was to, you know, stick my nose in there and make blocks and make hits and tackles. And that's the kind of player that I was. And that's like why I loved playing football was just to hit people. And I was like doing stupid spin moves and all sorts of wild stuff that I had no right trying to do with my level of athleticism. So Eventually, we, we get to the, the game day, the same day that Miss Barbara delivered the baby. And during gym class, which I had voluntarily sat out the whole week because my head was hurting me so bad, um, we were running around the track, and I was telling some of my friends that I was definitely going to die that night because my head hurt me so bad. So that probably should have been my first indication that I should have said something and probably not have played. But of course, you know, I wanted to be a big tough guy and I played that that uh, that night um, there are some other things involved that made me want to do that so if we didn't win that game we wouldn't have gone to the playoffs and I hadn't been in the playoffs the whole time I was in high school and that was one of my goals so that was a factor um, and I was a competitor so I wanted to to play I wanted to make plays and be the guy you know uh, so just before kickoff, I took about four Advil to try to subside my headache that I was having. Um, it didn't really help that much. <laughs> so about just before the second quarter started, I received a hit to the side of my head, and I started seeing blurred vision. So I did think it was weird, but of course I, took my, I talked myself out of it, and I was saying that I was probably sweating my eyes or something like that. And on the very next play, I ended up scoring a touchdown. So that kind of further validated to me that I was okay. Not so much. Because just before halftime, I was running the ball again. Then a defender wrapped my legs up in the backfield. And as I was going down, a second defender came in with his shoulder right into my face. So I slammed my head on the ground from that impact and I thought that the second hit was somewhat unnecessary, so I stood up to see why the referee hadn't uh, thrown a flag for unnecessary roughness or a late hit or something like that. And as soon as I stood up, I couldn't feel my legs. So at this point, I'm definitely freaking out. My head's killing me. I can't feel my legs. So I walk back to the huddle, and I'm telling my the guys, my buddies in the huddle that, I'm like, I just kept repeating this. I'm like, like, I definitely have a concussion or something. I definitely have a concussion. And I remember a couple of my friends helped me off to the sideline. And 
This is the part where it starts getting a little fuzzy, and I'm going to need uh, Miss Barber to kind of pick up the missing pieces. But I remember coming to the bench, and I remember I was really scared at this point because I couldn't feel my legs. So I knew it was something serious. I never remembered anyone saying that when they had a concussion that they couldn't feel their legs. So I was like, might be something a little bit more than a concussion. I remember sitting down, and that's pretty much the last thing that I remember. So, if, uh, Suzanne, if you could uh, kind of fill in that little spot there. Well, you don't, you may not remember coming off the field, but when you first started walking off, you had your two teammates holding, I don't know, not holding you up, but side by side with you. Right. And I said, Kevin, what's going on? And you said, which I've never had a student say this to me, my brain hurts. Most people tell me I have a headache. And you said to me, my brain hurts and my legs feel like rubber. And I said, take a knee. You said, no, I can make it to the bench. And I said, are you sure? He goes, but my brain hurts and my legs feel like rubber. You were very repetitive, right. but you wouldn't take a knee. We weren't, by that time, we weren't that far from the bench. So you sat on the bench and I checked you out and I knew you, in my mind, you had a concussion. You weren't yourself. Uh, the doctor at the game that day said, well, let me take a look at him. While she was looking at you, I got to stand back kind of as a, a different observer, you know, on, you know, not in the same place that she was. And I was watching you and I know you, we've known each other for the four years that you were there. And I said, he's different. I'm going to call the ambulance over. And she goes, okay, you know him better than I do. Then you just went through a series of lots of um, symptoms. There's so many different symptoms for head injuries, but you had the repetitive speech. You told me you were nauseous. I brought a trash can to you. And then you said, why did you bring that to me? And I said, because you said you were nauseous. And then you looked at me and you said, I am nauseous. But why did you bring the can? So you had some confusion. Um, your father came out. You didn't recognize him. At one point, you kind of stared at him. And I asked you, I said, do you know who that is? And you didn't um, respond. So uh, as the doctor was talking to you and I was noticing your changes, I, I, like I said, I called the ambulance. And then you got that infamous right-sided gaze that my heart went into my throat and I knew you had a brain bleed. And then I kind of jumped back and I got on the radio and I asked them to dispatch a paramedic unit to meet us line of sight for a brain injury, for a traumatic head injury with seizure. And the doctor kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? And sure enough, you went and seized. And while we were taking care of you, um, somebody said to me, do you want a helicopter? And I said, I don't want it if I have to wait for it because the rig is right here. I'd rather get rolling. Right. Because we were within, usually the rule of thumb is if you're within 20 minutes to drive to just go because it's quicker to get to the hospital. But I didn't have a paramedic for you, paramedic unit for you. We just had the BLS unit, which is basic life support. And I had this fear that you needed to, or this unwillingness, not unwillingness, this fear that you needed to be intubated. Because I didn't know if you, when the seizure was going to stop or if you were going to be able to breathe. So when they said to me, um, we're going to ask, I said, well, ask, but I'm not waiting. And you had a guardian angel that night. The helicopter was four minutes out coming back from another call. So they landed at the field down the road. By the time we packaged you up and got you down there, they were literally landing as we pulled in. And my thought process was, well, that's my paramedic unit. That's my ALS because I didn't have one close enough. So we went with it. And I remember them coming into the truck. They said, what do you have? And I explained to them very quickly because they said, we all have 30 seconds to get out of here because the fog was coming down. Yeah, it was like the weirdest night weather-wise. Mm -hmm. Like the fog was so bad that it, during the game, you like couldn't even see the other team. Uh, because it was like that thick of fog. And I remember the flight medic saying, you have 30 seconds to give me a report because we're in the, on the verge of being grounded. And I gave the report while we were scooting you down across the baseball field. And I remember putting you in and they said, run. And we all took off. So the helicopter could take off. 
and uh, you went off to the hospital. But I will say you made my night because just before we put you in there, you woke up and recognized me. Right. So I knew we had a some good good things got happening. And I remember that's when I start remembering things slightly because I remember you had the bag valve mask that was breathing for me, mm-hmm. and in my own head. I thought that that was like going against my breathing patterns. I was like, what the hell is this freaking thing doing here? I don't want this. So I remember I pushed it away, and that was when you asked me the question. I don't remember like what my answer was, but mm-hmm. I do remember that moment. And then I remember being in the helicopter and them asking me like if I was allergic to anything or like stuff like that. And I remember I knew the answers to this stuff, but I was so tired. All I asked was, like, can I just fall asleep? That's all I asked. Mm -hmm. And I think they said I could, but I don't know. I was struggling for sure. And then I remember when we got to the hospital, they they brought me into the emergency room or whatever room they brought me into, and I just threw up everywhere. So I was pretty upset about that. I remember I was apologizing to the nurses. I was I was very embarrassed. Well, that was definitely a sign too. Luckily, you didn't do that with me. <laughs> yeah. So, and then at that point, I thought I was fine. Like I felt fine, other than my head hurting. But like cognitively, I was fine. Like my, I remember my mom coming in, like her asking me questions, and then eventually later that night, my coaches came in and we were talking I was like talking about plays and I apologized for like missing tackles and stuff like that and I know the game like went into triple overtime and we eventually lost but either way my my buddies fought for me I think mm-hmm. um do you remember I know you came to the hospital that night mm-hmm. too do you remember what the doctor said or well one thing that I didn't mention before when your seizure was done is you mentioned the bag valve mask if people don't understand that you had actually uh, not stopped breathing, but you're only breathing about two times a minute on your own. So the reason why you were feel the fighting, I was trying to catch your breath when you had it and then fill in in between oh, okay. so we can at least get some oxygen to you. Um, but that's why you felt a little bit of a fight because sometimes I was pushing it in and you weren't breathing at all. Right. When we got to the hospital, I remember your father pulling me aside and he said, the doctor would like to talk to you because I guess the ER didn't really think you had a seizure. And I was, I was flabbergasted by that, but you when you got there, from what I understand, you were so with it, right. they couldn't believe that you were doing that well. So the doctor came over and started asking me some questions, and I'll never forget her writing as fast as she could, because I gave her, from the minute you got, the minute we started to talk, to the mm-hmm. minute you, I put you in the, in the helicopter. And then from what I understand, when your CAT scan came back, it was pretty much, they knew I was telling the truth. <laughs> right, it was pretty you bad. Know, yeah, so, but that she just wanted to know everything from the minute, and she even asked me, she said, I understand he had a head injury the week before, and that's when I was like a big time out. Right, yeah, Someone you didn't, didn't know that. that. Yeah, <clears throat> I didn't know that. Because I remember I was sitting in the whatever room I was in with my dad, and the doctors, because my CAT scan was so bad, they're like, mm-hmm. what the hell happened that this like, CAT scan is so bad? They're like, did you have a, a, a head injury before this? And since I, I didn't have a diagnosed head injury because I didn't say anything, mm-hmm. but I had been telling my dad on and off all week that my head was bothering me. So we kind of put two and two together that, yeah, I probably did have a head injury from the week before. And I think that's when they diagnosed me with the second impact syndrome mm-hmm. and the subdermal hematoma, which I think are usually like closely associated. Like Usually you have both of them. Well, I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, the doctor said you had a subdural and a subarachnoid. You had two separate bleeds. I don't know. I only yeah. know about the subdural. But, but they're not good. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not good. and you. Um, but the one, it's, it's a slow bleeder. So you probably, 
well, the fact that you told somebody that um, you felt like your brain was sloshing around. Right, that was that's probably pretty a significant. Bleed. Yes, you were probably bleeding slowly. Well, yeah. you pro- you were bleeding slowly all week, and then when you got the next hit. Right. So if just, anyone thinks that I'm not tough, I play with a, a brain bleed for a whole entire week, just so you guys know that. Okay. Um, not smart. Yeah, definitely not smart, but I'm definitely really tough. So at least now, listeners out there who might have missed the first episode, they now know my story. Uh, but some other things to note from this particular excerpt from episode one is kind of what my mindset was and what I thought toughness was at the time. You know, I was 25 years old at the time of this recording, and really my whole life leading up to that point, uh, I thought toughness was playing hurt, lifting the heaviest weight, scoring touchdowns, and really the stereotypical m- masculine things in, in American culture. And the next uh, episode that I'm going to pull an excerpt from is from episode 54 with Green Beret Bill Anthes. And he's someone who really opened my eyes to what the true definition of toughness is and something that I'm trying to use to redefine how athletes view toughness because it really has nothing to do with the physical and it really has everything to do with kind of the journey and the work that you put in to get to where you go. And I really hope that you listeners can, you know, get the same thing out of uh, this episode that that I did from from Bill and his Between the Ears evolution that I participated in. And I'm not sure if you guys picked up on this, but to this day, I still call it a subdermal hematoma instead of a subdural hematoma, just because I can't get that out of my head. And before we get too far, I forgot to explain exactly like why I was why I wanted to do this interview with you is because I did your last between the ears yeah. uh, seminar or evolution as you yeah. as you called it and it honestly had you know a, a huge impact on my life to be honest I swear to god because for the last 26 years I've grown up thinking of tough the idea of toughness um quote unquote as being something that's like you know, lifting the heaviest weight, playing injured, um, hitting home runs, you know, these like glorified, I don't know, events, I guess that you could, mm-hmm. I don't know what other word to use, but mm-hmm. you know, that, that was like my idea of toughness that I was always trying to live up to. And it was something that I always, um, was insecure about cause I felt like I could never mm-hmm. be tough enough or I wasn't good enough. And honestly, until I did between the ears, we're not going to go into it um, in detail for the reason, because, you know, people going forward who want to do it, it definitely wouldn't be the same. Like if I knew what we were going, going to do, going into it, it would have a completely different meeting and and outcome. But, you know, I was, I got emotional and I got to the point where I, I recently had knee surgery, not recently, but like 10 months ago. And I was hoping that by the six month mark, I'd be back to doing what I normally do, um, physically. And so when I went into this, I'm thinking like, oh, I could, I could do anything. And it's a, a combination of physical and mental kind of uh, collaboration, I guess, to, yeah. to make this kind of evolution. And, you know, when I was going through it, my body started breaking down. And, you know, these thoughts in my head kept going like that have always been there being like, you know, you're a freaking pussy. Keep going right, or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, and just like keep fighting through it. And what was interesting when we talked about before, or I guess like a week before, you sent an email saying, um, think about what your why is going into this. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of like leaders and thought leaders talk about the importance of why. And like even when we're coaching CrossFit yeah. to explain to the people that you're coaching why we're doing whatever. It's like there's a lot of meaning behind it. So 
I took that to heart and I really did sit down and I thought about it. And when I thought about my why, I was like, well, my body's breaking down. I can't do what I I normally wanted to do athletically, but I would like to think that I still have the same brain, the same, the same mental toughness, quote unquote, that I've always had, which was interesting because that same mindset is what has gotten me hurt and as tormented my you know self-worth and mm-hmm. my confidence for my entire life so I actually ended up t- pulling myself out of the uh evolution yep. and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life like I obviously I, I came up to you and I couldn't even get the words out without like bawling my eyes out <laughs> and I was you know, me trying to be quote-unquote tough yeah. you know and I'm bawling my eyes out here uh, in front yep. of all these people but what was awesome that I feel like people who are thinking about you know, doing a between the ears uh, seminar with you, it's a learning experience. It's not meant to like crush you or break you or anything Correct. like that. Like you're meant, the, the point of it is to learn something about yourself. And that's something that I definitely did. And it took me 26 years to kind of have this like aha moment. There you go. And a lot of it was, you know, how you said, can you, what's your definition of toughness that you told us, um, in the beginning? Yeah. Um, you know, and it's sort of directly related to the, to the task. Um, but yeah, you know, identifying a a small goal that's going to, you know, lend itself to a a positive direction and aggressively taking that, that first step towards it. Right. And, and you said the word engagement, right? Yeah. You're taking, um, the initiative to engage and mm-hmm. then every step or whatever you're doing, you know, take that aggressively. Right. Absolutely. And I remember, you know, probably, I don't know when, when we were at what point, but we were all feeling bad for ourselves. We were mm-hmm. sluggish and just kind of going through the motions and you stopped us. And it was a teaching point where you mm-hmm. said, you know, everyone feels bad for, you know, everyone's not feeling good. Everyone's like struggling. Yeah. Like your, your experience is not unique. Yes. You know? So, and you said, I think you said, like, toughness isn't just, like, going through the motions and just, like, getting something done. Like, mm-hmm. toughness is doing it with a purpose and doing it aggressively. Mm-hmm. Like, when you said that, I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, you're so right. Because my whole life I've just worked at, like, 50% of my capacity just to, like, get this to survive or just, to like, get something done or check it off the list. Right. That's, like, not being – that's not being tough. Like, No, you know, and I think people can – you know, people can – mislabel being tough as something they can look at and be like, okay, that dude lifted that weight or that person, you know, ran that fast or that person has that job or is that successful. Therefore they must be tough. And like, it's not, it, 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 it's not the, the toughest decisions are very rarely the, like the highlight reels, right? You know, you're not going to turn on ESPN and see the highlights of, the, of, of, of toughness. You know, it's just not the case. Um, as it related to that, that moment that we stopped and yeah, your situation isn't unique. Right. And that was a, a lesson I learned in somewhat a similar situation where I was now, you know, um, on the receiving end of that statement and everyone was thinking that, 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 Oh, you know, like, well, that person, that they don't know, even though they're next to you, right. you know, exactly. just getting crushed. <laughs> And and the instructor, the, the mentor, really stopped everybody. Was like, "Listen, 
Yeah, you're not. What you're experiencing is no different than what that person's experiencing. And by the way, a lot of people have experienced a lot worse. And if this is the worst you're going to experience, you haven't done anything. It's going to get a lot harder. Right. And, um, you know, he also was, was a big person on not sticking your head in the sand when it comes to experiencing trial and tribulation and, and, and that sort of mentality. Like, you go ahead. Just hide from it. That's weak. Or identify it, address it, face it, take it in, ask for more, bathe in it, and keep going. Right. And like that's that's where toughness, yeah. I had that moment where I was like, Yeah, you know, I'm gonna hook me up to an IV of this, give me more, and I'm going to take a step forward. Might not be successful, might fail, you know, might not be the outcome we we want. Right. Um which is exactly what my case was. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. And that's something that, you know, if if the end, if, if, this Machiavellian type thing, like the end isn't, it's not just about the end. It's not, it's not where you're going. It's not the destination, it, you know, and whatever. A lot of it is the journey. And you, you, there's, that's where life is lived, you know, in that journey. And when we are going through it, what questions are we asking ourselves? Are we listening to ourselves? Are we being a creature of convenience or are we saying like, it's hard? Okay, thanks. I'm going to take that. Like, yes, it's hard. Now what? Right. Once you identify it and address it, you know, you can accept it and choose to engage. And that kind of cycle is, is something that I think a lot of people don't know or, or pay attention to because right. they're so distracted. Um, so stripping away all of that ego you know and that that pride is i think critical for you to really see who you are right and that, that's exactly what it was for me it's like an ego thing like mm -hmm. i didn't want to quit i'm not a quitter you know like of course. i'm i'm not going to do that but honestly i feel like it was harder for me to say when i couldn't go any further than it was for me to just keep going and do what i've always done for my entire life yeah um so it was definitely a, an eye opening experience for sure and just one thing too you know there i think when i look when i think about this stuff there's like three buckets that automatically come to mind physical uh mental and emotional right with physical being the easiest one to navigate physically like there comes a point where you're physically broken down right and you cannot take that step you can try you know or just if people have physical limitations that just don't allow themselves to, to do that. But, you know, mentally and emotionally, those are the driving, those are the driving forces behind it. And, um, you know, we we're, we're capable of doing a lot more than physically we might think we could do. Uh, and if we look at the, the why behind that, I think, yeah, mentally and, and especially emotionally, what we're doing is, is driven by those. So that emotional piece too, that, you know, I, I, it is a standalone category and, and it's, it, yeah, sure. You can wrap it up in men, in the mental piece, but I, I feel like it deserves its own. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Kind of bucket. Right. Um, you talked about like asking questions and I, there's this one quote, um, that you said in your email and yeah. it's cool if I read of it, course. I think it's, uh, awesome. 
In my experience, we rarely learn the deepest and most powerful lessons by examining the surface. We need to go to the deepest depths not to find the answers, but to ask the questions. The answers, as we find out, are not always what we may want them to be. At the surface, potentially we answer these, answer these questions completely opposite of what the true answer really is. Um, and I, this experience definitely was one of those things. It wasn't like an answers thing. It was like right. asking all these questions. And that was like what filled up my mind for like the next week. Like it's all I thought about yeah. was, was kind of what we, what we went through. And when I asked these questions too, like I took myself out, but then I asked even more questions. I'm like, well, I took myself out because my knee was bothering me to the point where I was worried that I messed something up and it was going to be like a permanent, you know, issue for me. Mm -hmm. So I was scared, but at the same time, like once I, once we were, once we were done and it, it was over, um, I was like, did I cop, did I like cop out by sure. backing out? Like, did I take the easy way out? Like, could I have continued on, but just not done, you know, something that would egotistically make me look bigger, stronger, faster. Yeah. Um, or, you know, by me taking myself away from that situation and out of sight, out of mind, did, was that the easy thing to do? Like, and that was what I battle with myself constantly. I'm like, did I just, you know, was that an ego driven, you know, uh, decision or was that, you know, I'm, I'm hurt and I need to stop kind of thing, you know? And that's what I, that was the, the battle that I faced and, or I, the battle that was going on within my own yeah. head. Yeah. Um, what, what, I mean, I'd like to get your brutally honest opinion of me and I like to do it on the podcast sure. because I feel like being vulnerable is something that I ha I don't always do on the podcast. Like I let other people be vulnerable and then I'm just like, Oh yeah, it's like, cool. Like hopefully other people mm -hmm. will learn from that. But this experience has such an impact on me. I would like to get kind of your input on what you thought. Was I the one who was like dragging ass and like feeling bad for myself or, um, no, no, um, definitely not. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember. I had, so I came up to you earlier and asked how yeah. your knee was doing. Yeah. And I was struggling, but I just like, no, I'm good. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, all right, you know, you're a tough nut to crack yeah. and I get it. You're an athlete competing or competing. You're a competitor. Um, you have that ego. That's something that is present in a lot of people that are just high performers. And that, and that's, that's understandable because, you know, ego does push you a lot right. and it, it, you know, it's not always a bad thing, but you needed the toughest thing you did was strip down your ego. Right. And if physically you, if your why was only physical, you could have, you could have finished. Right. And you could have potentially done catastrophic damage to your knee, which would have had like a huge fallout into other areas in your life. But you were able to finally come to the conclusion of like, I need to stop because if I continue, I am risking not just the knee and you know how it is dealing with injury, like the daily battle that happens when you feel like you are physically not capable of doing something. And so you were able to, to, to put the ego away, strip the armor, drop the muscle, all of that. And like really give it as, as the, you only, you can see to the deepest depths of your, you know, of, of who you are. Right. And made the decision 
which I agree with, and and engaged on it. That's tough. Right. That is a tough decision, and it is a, you know, in, in its nature and execution, it's 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 tough as well. And um, you know, that's where it was not the finish you wanted, but I think it was potentially the finish you needed. Ever since the time I was being wheeled into surgery. Uh, to have a craniotomy to, you know, save my life and to relieve the pressure on my brain. And the doctor told me that I would literally never set foot on a football field again. I always felt inadequate compared to other athletes who were able to achieve what my dream was, was to play college sports. And, you know, during this Between the Ears event that I participated in, I did it with some of my friends, two of which, one was uh, Dallas Awano, who's from episode 27 of the podcast, played basketball at Villanova. Our other friend, uh, Tom Costigan, played baseball at Manhattan College. And my girlfriend, Lauren, played uh, soccer at Gaysburg College. And they were all doing this Between the Ears seminar with me. And when my knee was bothering me and everything like that, you know, I felt like I still couldn't hang with these people. I couldn't hang with these athletes. I wasn't good enough. I was still inadequate compared to them. And that's why I kept trying to push myself and push myself, even though my knee kept hurting me more and more the the further we went in this uh, between the ears evolution. But, you know, I think what Bill said at, at the end of that little excerpt is, you know, this wasn't the outcome that I wanted, you know, in that I ended up quitting, you know, and I was crying and, you know, definitely not showing your stereotypical uh, signs of masculinity or toughness, but it was certainly the outcome that I needed to show that there was no, you know, ill effects from looking out for yourself and taking care of yourself. And to, you know, the, the toughest decision I made that night was to tell Bill that, you know, I couldn't go any further because I was hurt. And, you know, 10 years ago, you know, at, at this point in time in my life today, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have that courage when I was 17 years old to tell my athletic trainer, to tell uh, my coaches or my parents that I was hurt and I couldn't play that night. And, you know, with that mentality, I kept hurting myself, which is why I hurt my knee. And I always just pushed myself and pushed myself and pushed myself to the point where I broke instead of taking care of myself along the way and taking those aggressive and purposeful steps towards a a certain goal, uh, like Bill had alluded to earlier in that excerpt. Next up in this 100th episode, we hear from uh, Lou Vanorski, who was my episode two guest. He was also my youth football coach growing up, and he currently coaches high school football today. And it's interesting to get his perspective on how he views injuries and, you know, hurt versus injured and how maybe playing hurt can lead to being injured eventually. And Lou also had a pacemaker put in when he was playing high school football, and he talks about some of the struggles that he went through and how it's really tough to find that outlet that I hope, you know, this podcast has become for athletes who might feel like they're alone. But I think it's, I think the Rutgers thing for you and just, you know, and for me it was, it ended up being flag football, I think, in college of, of all things, but it kind of filled that, that spot, man, because there's a void for sure when when something gets taken from you. Right, you need to fill it with a new you need to, a new purpose. Absolutely, or yeah. or, or you're not going to figure out how to persevere. And I think that's kind of the the whole point is like you're going to get through it. You just got to find your way through the through the forest a little. Right. So, what was like your lowest point? Oh my god, 
after with the with pacemaker. The, with the pacemaker oh yeah. God. I don't even, Kev. I don't even remember those that six months, seven months, whatever, from November to spring, April ish, when when that doctor said I could play. So what's that? That's about six months, right? So six, seven months. All right. I don't remember a thing, man. I really don't. I it was low, man. I, you know, dude, I was crying myself to sleep. Right. You know, like what? What's going on here? What am I really doing? Yeah. You know, school wasn't cutting it. You know, school was, you know, staying school kids. <laughs> but school was just, you know, didn't want to be the next mathlete. No, I mean, you know, I it just it was dark, man. You know, right. I'd come home and who are you going to talk to about it? You know, that's the that's the one thing. Like, not that I was, I'm not a right. Cause I'm not someone, a big lovey dovey dude. Yeah, but, but someone who's 15, not too many people in their whole life go through something no, that you went through. No, so you have no one to kind of relate to. You have nothing to. There's no manual for it. Right. You know, for for any for a parent for a sibling or a friend there's no you know and i had great friends man i'd still hang out with them and stuff but, right. but they have no idea like, you have no idea you know because and again it's like some people didn't even know like people i was friends with you know and they had no idea that i even had it till like years later you know like in casual conversation someone would make a joke and they were like what you have a pacemaker because i didn't i never showed it right. i was back i missed two days of school you know and i played football you know, I guess you wouldn't expect that from right. from somebody with with the pacemaker. So nobody really knew. I wasn't really advertising. It wasn't something that's, um, and I always made sure that you know, on the, you know, when I was in school and around people, I, I you know, it's not, it's not your problem. It's right. mine. So, so I'm cool. You know, and I'm good. But you know, when you go home and you're, you're looking in that mirror, man, it's it get that's when it gets scary. Yeah, this is part of the reason why I'm like trying to make this podcast. So people who do have similar experiences to this, to this that yep. they don't have someone to talk to about that like understands kind of what they're going through. They could pull from your story and kind of see like there is light at the end of the tunnel type thing. There is for sure. And I know when I had my head injury, my girlfriend at the time in high school, she also went through a traumatic event as well. She was in a car accident and her friend passed away. Oh wow. And she was lucky to be alive too. But that, I had, we created a bond kind of through yeah. that yep. and that definitely helped me like kind of get through the process. We have our, our own issues, you know, further down the line, yeah. but definitely having someone, um, there to kind of help you through that tough time would be, uh, definitely beneficial. You know what we need at your next podcast is like a, a staff member. We need staff members here to like get us drinks, get us drinks and stuff. Like, I'm out of water. But, well, this could be a good time for a break. No way. No way. Um, but you definitely, when, when you have, like, um, and did your friends talk to you about your, your injury? Like, were you, um, like, kids on the team or, like, teammates? Did, did, they, did you talk about it with anybody besides her? Um, I don't think so. I mean, they, like, came to see me in the hospital and yeah. stuff. But, like, it's also one of those things, like, with my head injury. Like, I almost died for sure. Yep. I'm lucky to be alive. I loved football, and I would never want anyone to not play football because of what happened to me. But it's tough to talk to people who play the sport that almost killed you yeah. about the injury without like yeah. scaring them. It's very yeah. uncomfortable. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I think the reason, like, I got hurt eight years ago, and I've always wanted to do something to kind of help people who are in like similar situations and I don't know why it took me eight years to start this but part of the reason was because 
I was like, no one's going to want to listen to me. Like the people that play football don't want to hear about this mm-hmm. because like then they're going to be scared to play football. And like, that's not what I wanted. I felt yeah. like my story went against almost my, my own beliefs. Yeah. Like I, I don't want people to not play sports. That's not the point of this podcast. I want people to overcome obstacles and say, you can't play football anymore. You can't play whatever sport anymore. There's something else there. You know, like there's more to life than just a sport and there's other outlets that you could you could find to kind of help fill that void. And sometimes, you know, that's the whole point of the podcast, man. You Sometimes you got to get out of your own way and find a way to persevere. So you might be scared. And, and, and nowadays, like with everything, all the, with, with Twitter and all this Instagram and all this stuff, like the information's coming in. I think that's part of it where, where a kid will, oh, I got a headache. I have a concussion. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you're scared about it. Right. You know, and you, you can still play when when you're injured. But be a- smart. Me, after you're injured, let me say. You, you get hurt no matter what it is. You can still play. Right. You know, and you got to find a way to get past that. See, because like had I told someone that my my head hurt, yeah, I could have probably still played football if I sat out like Absolutely. two or three weeks. So this episode with Lou Van Orsky kind of, you know, showed how far we've come in terms of we no longer record with squeaky chairs and I... Now don't put ice cubes in the cups that we drink out of. And I actually did get to upgrade to having uh, an assistant this past summer. I had our intern, Alex. Uh, he was a big help uh, with the podcast, and we appreciate what he did for us. And, you know, what also I found is interesting is he's a coach who's, you know, currently coaching today is working with athletes who were the same age as me when I uh, had my head injury. And he gets it, you know, like he understands injuries and he understands that, you know, playing hurt, will get you, you know, further injured and hopefully not to the point or the severity that I got injured, but either way, you're not helping yourself out. And if you sit out for a game or two or a practice or two to take care of your body in terms of longevity, that's going to, that is a decision that will benefit you greatly down the road. Uh, The other thing that I hope to get out of this particular excerpt is that, you know, I was trying to provide an outlet for people who felt like they were alone in their uh, adversity that there's just to show them that they're not alone and that there's all these people and I have a hundred interviews of people who have gone through something that someone else can relate to uh, listening to this today so I my hope is that no athlete going down the road uh, who ever has an injury illness obstacle whatever just to know that they can come to the Heads and Tails podcast and there's someone that they can be able to relate to and connect with uh, to help you know ease their transition to back onto the field or to a life after sports. And another guy who uh, really helps athletes redefine what once defined them, like football did for me, is NFL linebacker David Vabor. And there's like a, a whole entire Pinterest account worth of inspirational quotes in uh, David's uh, interview. And it's still one of my favorite interviews to date. And to this day, when I go and speak at schools or at other uh, presentations I'm giving, I, I always use quotes from, from this particular episode. And I have no doubt that uh, you'll be able to take something with you as well. Um, so, David, can you start talking about um, kind of what injuries you suffered from during your athletic career? Yeah, well, as you know, football, it's a 100% guarantee that at some point uh, you're going to be on the injured list. I mean, yep. whether that's something that is uh, a true injured reserve list where you're going to miss time playing uh, or if it's just a ding that you have to overcome before the next game. Um, you know, so for me, 
really the the traumatic one or the kind of catastrophic one that ended up being the last play I played in the NFL was in 2011 playing for the Seahawks. I was covering a punt and I got shoved in the back. Redskins player gave me a nice little boost and I landed hard on my elbow and it just, it blew everything in the shoulder. Um, Not knowing at the time that would be my last time on the gridiron in an NFL stadium. But uh, that was really what kind of sent this, this spiral into effect. I mean, I think that there was some, some, some signs that my identity was completely wrapped up in football. And, and at some level, Kevin, it had to be. You know, as you know, I mean, as you compete at a high level, the margin uh, between talent gets so small that, you know, you have to have a tunnel vision to have success and even to survive. And so for me, it was, you know, I didn't know who David was without football. And that, that created a very big identity crisis. Yeah, it's interesting that you you say that um, because you know it, it, when you have that transition to life after sports, it'd be a lot easier if you had another purpose to go to. But like you said, to make it to an elite level like you achieved, and that most people don't, you have to have this kind of you know laser focus on on the goal or the task at hand. So that's 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 interesting. Um, yeah, you know, just to add one last thing on that, I think I felt like a shark in the water that if I I stopped swimming, I was going to get eaten. And, you know, again, uh, becoming a lead in your craft, working your whole life to that, and then suddenly having to think about what you're going to do out in the real world, right? I mean, that paralyzed me with fear. It's like I, I it covered two in my understanding of his own defense. That doesn't transfer to corporate America right. uh, as much as I wish it, it could. And some of the things that I did, you know, at the time it was like traumatic brain injuries, uh, a number of significant concussions that caused me to lose time. And then a variety of other injuries. It's like, man, I, I bled, I, I sweat, I, all the tears that I endured going through this game that I loved to think about going and doing something that you didn't have to put your soul into. It scared me. Right. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, so what was like the rehab process like for that shoulder injury? Were you still trying to make it back to the NFL? I was at the time, you know, I, I think what, the injury did was magnify a deeper, uh, deeper rooted issue in me. And uh, as much as there was pain and that what started with prescriptions ultimately manifest itself in a wicked pain pill addiction. And at times, you know, it was to not have to think about what was next uh, or the fact that I wasn't invincible. Um, but really it began to be a habit that formed that I just had to take them not to be sick because of the physical symptoms of withdrawal. And it wasn't long until I was spending two, $3,000 a week. And that was just to, to have enough to get by. Um, and so uh, there's sort of two ways to look at the, that word rehab. One was, and I finished the 2011 season with the Seahawks. I checked myself into a detox unit. I lost 34 pounds, had two seizures. I literally couldn't stand uh, at one point on my own. And that's and, all from the drugs? It is from the, was from the drugs, yeah. And this is all... You know, weeks prior, I was playing in front of 80,000 people inside CenturyLink Stadium for the Seahawks. Um, And so that fall was great. But again, and I'll talk a lot about this, probably in a little bit, I'll talk more about pain. But pain is, in my mind, the greatest motivator. And pain, not necessarily pain, bad pain, good pain, purposeful pain, you know, uh, pain for purpose, that can be something that can redirect your life into a place of positivity. And so the first thing I did was I asked for help because I was struggling with addiction. And as I rehabilitated my mind, along with my body, I went through some surgeries, um, stayed clean, and I started to look at at who is David without football? Who is my identity? What are the attributes that made David who I was that made me a great football player that that could actually transfer into everyday life? 
And um, once I started to focus on those things, I was also rehabilitating my body and I was seeing massive results and progress in, in what I was doing physically. So I took that year and, and I was ready to go. NFL teams were calling and suddenly something had shifted. I got a call from an NFL team to return to the field and that, that enthusiasm, the zeal in my heart was gone. And it scared me a little bit at first, like, wait a second, I've been training all this time to get back, but now suddenly it's different. But I had discernment and I knew that it was time to close that chapter of my life, even though I had snaps left. Um, I, I, felt, I felt comfortable. I felt, I felt like I was making the right decision to, to move on. And uh, that was really what opened the door to really how I could use my gifts to match someone's needs. That's awesome. So did you just like wake up one morning and kind of like feel this way? Or was it, you know, was it because you asked for help and, you know, it was someone that you, you talked with or... You know, I think it was when I got that call, uh, my coach, one of my former coaches was with the Saints at the time, and he called to bring me in. And I just didn't feel the excitement in my heart. And I knew, you know, football is not a game that you can have one foot in, one foot out. Not at, not yeah, at that level. All in. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I it, it was like, all right, well, there's my clarity. And, um, you know, I text my agent. I told him, I think it's time for me to retire. I don't know what my next calling is. But and at the time, I almost I, I really thought it was coaching or scouting. It was just kind of a natural path. But um, I've always loved the gym. You know, it's been my sanctuary because I love the, the idea of taking potential and, and through hard work, you can foster success um, you know, and overcome those that may be more talented than you through what uh, you can do to better yourself daily. Right. And um, you know, it just it felt like this huge tug on my heart to start a gym and to hopefully help expedite success for athletes based on the knowledge that I had learned in human performance. That's funny you say that because a lot of the athletes that I – interview they say the same thing that they almost enjoy the training you know and preparing for the the actual sport itself than actually playing the sport itself um so that's pretty funny before we we move on um was it hard to ask for help um just being an athlete and being a a male and you know in this like kind of culture of toughness when you were struggling with that uh painkiller addiction yeah definitely i had a great coach uh, he was an assistant linebacker coach, and he had gone through. I actually played against him, uh, Jeff Ulbrich. He's coaching at UCLA now, but he was with the Niners when I first got in the league. We battled against each other when I was with the Rams, and then he ended up becoming my coach in Seattle. And, you know, during stretch every day, he'd walk by me and say, hey, when you're ready to talk, let's do it. And I'd kind of look at him like, what are you talking about, man? I tried to play it off like, what are you even saying? But he he knew, right? He could see it in my eyes. He could, I think he just understood because he'd seen it in himself. And, um, you know, that made it a little bit easier to own. I think I never lost my ability to be rigorously honest with myself, and that was a benefit. Um, you know, I tried to deny it on the surface, but at my core, I realized yeah, that you knew. I needed help. And so, again, I think the first step that I'd encourage anybody that's struggling with addiction is to tell on yourself. You know, go to someone and, and, and open your mouth because if you let it fester between your left ear and your right ear, um, it'll, it'll manifest itself in a way that is cunning and will use your best attributes against you. To me, if you're bold and you go out and you just speak it out into existence, one, it'll loosen its grip, but it'll also allow you to uh, make the first step toward, toward recovery. That's awesome. Um, speaking of toughness and on the topic of toughness, what is your definition of toughness? And was it different when you played, you know, in high school, college, NFL, and you know, compared to today, or is it still the same definition? Yeah, I think it's changed. I think, you know, I'm a father now too, and so I'm always mindful of what I'm teaching my girls, not so much through what I speak, but how I'm 
emulating what I want them to learn about words like toughness and bravery and courage. And um, a really wise mentor of mine once told me, you can be comfortable or you can be brave, but you can't be both. Um, at least not at the same time. Right. And I think that, you know, tough, that's toughness to me. It, it's, it's, you know, knowing that uncertainty lies around the corner um, or whatever hand that you're dealt, it may be an adverse one, but staring right back at it and deciding to step toward it, not back away. Um, right. You know, that, that, that's it. That's it for me. It's, it's, it's a mindset and, and toughness can be exported in different ways uh, on different arenas in sport or in just, you know, whatever someone faces on a daily basis. I mean, there's everyone faces a mountain and you can't marginalize the, the steepness or, or the, you know, the peak of that mountain. But I think that people that are tough just don't worry about how far or how long the climb is going to be. I think they just worry about putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I know, like, I grew up always thinking that toughness was, like, playing injured or lifting the heaviest weight or hitting home runs or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But I literally just realized, like, two weeks ago that that's, like, not tough at all. Like, that doesn't make anyone tough. Um, yeah, I but, think toughness, toughness is less about the results or the outcome and everything about the journey and the resilience and the courage that it takes to step up and fail, step up and fail. And the more that you fail forward, eventually you come out successful. That's awesome. Uh, so for you, you played, obviously, I'm sure you played injured and stuff like that um, throughout your career. So like, where does the line, you know, lay between playing injured and putting yourself like in and your career at risk, you know, like where's the risk benefit line? Yeah, it's relative to each person. You know, I, I figured that I was going to die on a football field. I figured I would literally have to be broken to the point where they'd have to just, just pull me off on a stretcher. I mean, and that's basically what happened to me. So, <laughs> Right, right. And there's, yeah. you know, and that, that to some people, um, you know, that, that's their mindset. And I think, you know, that there's a level of valor in that. Um, but it, at different times, I think people can see with clarity their next step. And for me... Um, you know, I had, I had achieved success of playing in the NFL. Um, but that mindset, it really was, it was an empty success. It didn't have meaning because I was in, I was, it was just about David. It wasn't that I didn't care about people while I played, but it was, I had such a focus on, you know, David becoming the best David could be so that David could stick around so that David could start so that David could excel. And, you know, it's empty success is like lust, right? It's good to the touch, but it's never enough. And to right. me, you know, when people can tap into their why, because if you have the wrong why, winning will feel like losing. That's what my NFL career offered me. Now, it did offer me a platform now to be able to, to speak to people, to hopefully have a platform to change people's lives and transform them. But yeah, really, doing that. <laughs> my most important work, though, is, is today. And it'll be tomorrow. Because I know that, you know, I was given certain gifts to help people to achieve and to believe in themselves and to really defy what wants to find them. So what have been the greatest lessons that you've learned from working with these adaptive athletes? I know in one of your videos, you talked about the idea of uh, surrendering to win. I'd love to hear like what, what that means to you. Yeah. I don't trust an unbroken person. I believe those that are willing to share their scars or proof that they're willing to move beyond them. You know, if you pretend to have it all put together and to be perfect, I'm going to move away from you as far, far away as I can. Um, I think that there's something honest and earnest about someone who says, 
hey, uh, I, I, you know, I don't have it all put together and I, like you, um, you know, need to come with this humble mentality that I have something to learn. Uh, but at the same time, that I can also help expedite suffering of other people based on what I've endured. And I think that happens when people realize gratitude. They become, you know, they become gracious for things in their life that they may have begged God to remove at the time. You know, I'm sure, Kevin, like you, I mean, I have had moments where it just seemed like, God, why is this happening to me? Yeah. Um, but you know what? Life happens for you, not to you. And when that mindset shifts, you, you can take the excuses of why not and make them the reasons of why. It may look different. It may not be the same expectation that you drew up in your mind, but it's only when people feel helpless or hopeless to change a scenario that they suffer. And this, these, the Adaptive Training Foundation athletes, they have gulped pain in copious amounts, in amounts that most people could never imagine or fathom, um, but they no longer suffer. You know, and, and I think there's a battle going on between our instincts, you know, our gut instincts, our stomach, I think, our, uh, and our brain, our intellect. I think you've got two brains, right? You've got the brain up in your head that takes reason and logic and it rationalizes certain thoughts. And then you've got your gut instincts, right? Your intuition. And to me, the gut instinct, when I, when I became the David that I am today, I've got a great awareness of where my gut is calling me to go. And a lot of times it's, it's scary. And it, I get a little bit afraid because it'll tell me to do something. I'm like, oh man, I don't have time, right? This isn't convenient. Uh, this isn't what I planned today. But if right. I feel called, I now listen to it. And, and back when I was in the league and I was using and abusing, I, I, I had completely cut off. I had severed my ability to listen to my gut. And now... I think I use my gut first and then I use my head to go, all right, is this something that I, that I, I feel called to do that's going to offer the best version of David to, to come forth? And rather than my head saying, hey, David, this is, this is about you. You know, you don't have time. They're going to figure it out themselves. Um, you know, somebody else will answer the call. Stop passing the buck to someone else and realize that, you know, you have some certain gifts Maybe even the pain that you've endured. Maybe you're someone that was abused as a kid. You know, maybe you were, um, you know, maybe you were bullied as a kid. Think about what it was that you hated to endure that now you can take and go out and avoid, help to avoid the suffering of someone else. That to me is the only purpose of life. You're born into this world with nothing. You die with nothing. So the only real conclusion I have as an old meathead football player is to give of as much of yourself during the time you have. How totally awesome was that interview? Yeah, thanks to my dad, I know that I said awesome a lot throughout that interview, and I've since come up with new rebuttals to my guest talking points uh, going forward. But a couple things I wanted to point out from uh, David's episode, uh, which to this day, like I said, is still one of my favorites, uh, is the idea of paying for a purpose and using your gifts to match someone else's needs. And this couldn't be more true for me because you know I started the podcast because of how much I struggled uh, with my transitional life after sports and trying to find a new identity outside of the sport of football. And also, I didn't want anyone to go through that in the first place. So to kind of use my story to prevent other athletes from making the same mistake that I made, which was to play with a concussion, um, you know, has in this process of you know, sharing my story and, you know, helping others, it's helped me in, at the same time kind of forge a new identity and to prove to myself that, you know, I'm not just a football player. 
Another thing I wanted to point out was uh, how closely related David's uh, definition of toughness was uh, to Bill Anthony's uh, definition of toughness. And I think the only add-on that uh, David had was that, you know, when you have the wrong why, winning can feel like losing. And, you know, when I think back to my why, you know, going in when I was in high school was my why for wanting to play injured and to, you know, score touchdowns and lift the heaviest weight was because I wanted my coach to think I was tough. I wanted my parents to think I was tough. I wanted my classmates and friends and teammates to think that I was tough. And those were all external things. I had no control over whether they thought I was tough or not. You know, that was a decision that they made. And because of that, it was a very fleeting feeling. Like I can never be tough enough. There's always going to be someone who's stronger than me, someone that's playing with a you know more severe injury than me, or someone that's faster, or you know whatever. And I don't have control over that. The only thing I have control over is my own actions and whether I take a purposeful and an engaging and aggressive step towards making myself better every day. And that's something that I do have control over, and that's something that you have control over. And you know, in doing so, you have control over your own toughness. And now, to cap off the 100th episode of the Heads and Tails podcast, I bring you episode 47 guest and former Rutgers football player, Eric Legrand. You know, do you ever think about getting hurt playing football or? Never. Never like I said, I've, I had a sprained ankle in my sophomore year in high school, and I had to sit out for a practice or two, and I remember that killed me. Killed me inside because I was the type of player, somebody was getting better than me. Right. And like somebody was doing something I couldn't do it there. That means they're it's a helpless feeling, yeah. So helpless. I'm just sitting there watching. I'm like, this is miserable. So other than that, I never had an injury, so I never really thought about it. And paralysis, forget it. I didn't know what the spinal cord injury was and being paralyzed, right. what what comes with it. I had no idea. Never even thought about it. Never crossed my mind in my entire life. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I did my regular stuff on October sixteenth, two thousand and ten, went through my Regular routines I went for a home game. We left the Hyatt. Instead of driving over to High Point Solution Stadium now, we went drove up to MetLife. the MetLife. And I remember just getting there, seeing the posters of with us and you know, going through those, going into the Giants locker room, like things like that, or whatever locker room we were in that day. It was, it was awesome, you know. And then just went out there just like a regular day. Went through my regular routine, went out to the field before the game. And didn't happen until the fourth quarter with five minutes left in the game. So right. the game was almost over, so – Pretty crazy how it went down. Yeah, so can you, like, take us through the play? Oh, yeah. And I was so on that particular kickoff. I was, well, that whole game I was facing the double team. So right away when I kicked off the ball, two guys were coming at me. And on that kickoff, I was able to get right through them. So I had a good 30, 40-yard head start at the guy when I said I was going to make a tackle on Malcolm Brown. I was like, all right, I'm running down the field. How do I want to make this tackle? Do I want to use my head or do I want to use my shoulder? And I said to myself, I'm going to use my shoulder here on this tackle. I'm going to put my head down so it goes on the side of his Ribs were on the side of his shoulder pad, not even in the in the play at all. Right. And from there, I actually my our teammate Wayne Warren got down there a little bit before I did. And he tripped him up a little bit. And as he tripped him up, Malcolm Brown turned and twirled in the air. And as he twirled in the air, I put my head down thinking It was the side of his body. Exactly, yeah. And his body got twirled in the air. Next thing you know, the crown of my head ends up hitting right on the back of his shoulder blade. And that's what caused the caused the accident right there. They said it was like the fastest man in the world, Usain Bolt, running full speed into a brick wall. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the collisions on kickoff are, are pretty crazy. So what was going through your head immediately, like, after that? Right away, I, I heard the crowd go, ooh. Right. So I when I first hit it, it was like, boom. Like, it was almost like a flash grenade went off. So I was like, tried to get up to celebrate. 
Once I couldn't get up, I was like, all right, can't move right now. I'm like, maybe I got a full body stinger. From there, I was like, I tried to take a deep breath, and I couldn't breathe on my own. So I felt like I got the wind knocked out of me. But I'm like, oh, man. I said, maybe I knocked the wind out of myself, but I can't move and I can't breathe. About 10 seconds later, I got the trainers in front of me asking me, is it your head or your neck? And I'm like, I can't breathe. That's all I could get out at the time. And they're like, can you move this or can you feel this? Can you feel that? I'm just like, I can't breathe. That's all I could say to them at the time. Were you freaking out or what? I was nervous, very nervous. But I, well, since I couldn't breathe and I was just I was tired from running down there on kickoff, I was trying to do anything I could to slow my, you know, slow my right. breath down from, like, panting like that. So I was trying to slow that down. And then Coach Shiano came out, and he looked down at me, and he told me to pray. And honestly, when he said that, just to pray, I'm like, this is this is bad. This My life might be over right here. I can't move. I can't breathe. Coach Shiano told me to pray. I'm like, this is it. Right. I'm like, well, did that it. help when he said that, or did and it make I mean, it worse? No, and I'm thinking, no, I'm, of course I'm praying for a gas of air at the time. Right. But, I'm like, this, I'm like, my life has a chance to be over right here. So what was, like, the diagnosis when you got to the hospital? Well, I didn't hear this from the, from, from the beginning because I was getting ready for surgery, but they straight up told my mom. They came in there and said, your son has fractured his C3, C4 vertebrae. He'll be paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. He'll be on a ventilator for the rest of his life. He won't be able to breathe on his own. He'll never eat solid foods, of course, never walk again. And we're hoping that he's, his body is strong enough and healthy enough to make it through the surgery because he may have complications and he couldn't pass That's know, pass insane, yeah. Through the surgery. So imagine he, Scott Vallone was in the room, actually, when he heard Oh, when that. it happened? And he, bu- he, I remember I heard he busted out the room and just screamed, F no, just, like, just screamed and lost it on the floor. Damn. And my mom was just sitting right there, just like, you know, could only In imagine. shock, I'm sure. Yeah, so it was... Wasn't wasn't a wasn't a good sign, you know. For I always say the people around me that were the closest to me had it worse than I had it. I was so drugged up and medicated, I don't know anything. Yeah, these the ones like my family, my friends, and teammates that are around me, they were hearing all this stuff, so they had it worse than me the first week. Right. So you, they told you all these things that you wouldn't be able to do, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, what obstacles were you to? Did you overcome? I know you eventually got Mm -hmm. off the the ventilator and stuff. So can you talk about? You know how you how you've proved people wrong. Yeah, and the ventilator was the first thing that I was able to come off of. It was, you know, one night I was just sitting in Kessler and I'm like, I can't sleep right now. Just the noise that it was making was absolutely killing me. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not gonna get any sleep. So I asked my respiratory therapist. I'm like, can you please take this this off? Let me get a, a minute or so without it off. She goes, All right, if I take it off, you off the ventilator, you might last a minute or so. I'm like, maybe I'll fall asleep in that minute. Perfect. Right. She takes me off and. Hour and a half later, I was still breathing on my own, and she was like, "Oh, oh maybe, maybe you are ready to wean off of this thing." And week and a half later, I was breathing on my own fully again. And from there, was getting a feeding tube out of my stomach, and I, I got hurt on October sixteenth, and I, that Thanksgiving, I was able to eat a full solid meal with my family. To then, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, from there to it was at the Super Bowl party. I'll never forget. It was, I had a bunch of friends up there for, for my a Super Bowl party to watch the game, and I remember moving my shoulder at the time when they told me I would never move anything below my you know my neck and all of a sudden i started lifting up my shoulder sure. and my elbow came up just so slightly a little bit and everyone was like oh my god i'm like yeah from now i'm shimmy shake dancing all over <laughs> moving around but um yeah so things came are coming back for me slowly but surely but in the beginning just seeing all that and i said right after the ventilator thing i'm like the doctor told me i'll never come off of this how can he tell me i'll never walk again when five weeks later i'm breathing on my own exactly yeah that's awesome that's a good uh good mindset so when you were on a, a feeding tube, has that 
you know, increased your appreciation for, for food? Like, what, what's your favorite, uh, your go-to meal? Oh, man, I, I'm a bad eater. I ain't going to lie to you. I, <laughs> I burgers, fries, pizza, milkshakes. That's me. Mom's it's, cookies, yeah. Mom's cookies. <laughs> just shoot. I wish you could make some now, but that's the, I was only eat two times a day now since I'm only, I'm not burning as many calories as I used to. But right. I'm the biggest junk food eater there is out there. I love me a grease shrimp sandwich and things oh. like that. How did you approach like goal setting in, in your rehab? Like you, you went from being, mm-hmm. you know, division one athlete, um, using your muscles all the time. Now you, you can't use your muscles anymore. So how did that, you know, even mentally, you know, how did you kind of think about how you're going to attack your rehab mentally attacking it was the same way i attacked you know going into weight room sessions and on the field you know something you're not always going to want to do you know you wake up sore some days you don't want to do it but you got to go in there you got to get the job done that's why i say being an athlete has honestly helped my rehab so much especially from a mental point being able to go into therapy like i gotta do this anyway i gotta get this done right you know being able to like transition from it that's a lot of people maybe someone who never has been an athlete before and they fall down, they break their back, you know, cleaning their gutter. Now they all of a sudden, they got to go to rehab three, four, five right, times right. a week. They don't have that athlete's mindset sometimes. And then sometimes it comes back. So it helped you, them. yeah. It helped me. I knew what I had to get done and what I wanted to do. Like I said, my ultimate goal still is to walk again one day. I wish I could put short-term girls on this injury. But, you know, I could control, you know, control what I can't control and yeah. everything else. I just leave in God's hands. Awesome. All right, so what was it like coming out for the West Virginia game? You, you, I remember you – in your book, you talked about the reason why you did it, but what was it like when you actually got out there? It was first off, it was cold, and I yeah, said it was to snowing myself, that like, day. "What am I doing?" For, you know, five feet of snow in a blizzard. I think that was the coldest game I've ever experienced, at, but during my time at <laughs> it Rutgers, it was ridiculous, yeah. man. This should be a no football game being played that day, but you know, yeah. that's what it was all about. You know, handling adversity. But when I got out there, it was the first time I ever actually almost got emotional. You know, you never actually see me like cry during this injury. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, well, I could probably kind of, you know, maybe my hands, maybe three hands. Many times I cried through my through my injury. But um, when I was out there, I'll never forget. I saw when I got to the sideline, after I came through and everything, we let it out smiling and everything. It was a really cool moment. Get to the sideline, I see Steve Baharnas come up to me, our starting middle linebacker, yep. crying, like crying from that moment. And then the next person I see was my freshman year roommate, Brandon Jones. Comes up to me, just walks right past Juice, me. Juice, right? Juice, <laughs> bawling his eyes out. And right there, I kind of got the frog in my throat for a second. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh. I was like nah, nah, this ain't happening here on Channel 7 right now. Nope, on ABC, <laughs> no way. And I was just like, oh, turn my head real quick. I was like, they, they almost caught me in the moment. I've never been choked up like that before, you know, through everything so far. And then right there, that moment almost got me. And after that, I drove into the tunnel. I remember telling the guy who was escorting me, Bruce, I'm like, and my mom almost got me for a second. I got a little bit nervous. I thought I was going to start crying out there. Yeah. So is it because, like, you know, you're always a football player. You're trying to kind of, like, hide your emotions and stuff like that. Is that why? And did that uh, help you or hurt you, you know, in terms of, like, mentally, you know, and emotionally re- recovering? Well, to be honest with you, I do. If I would have started crying out there, I would need somebody to wipe my eyes or I wouldn't have been able to see. And, <laughs> and, my, mom, and my mom wasn't around her at the time. She was up in the stairs, so I would have had to be, I would have been driving after that with one eye. And I would have looked, believe me, it's, it's crazy. When I need my eyes, my man, no one's around. So I'm like, when, when I thought about that, and then two, I was like, you know, I, I just, I'm like, I'm not crying out here right now. You know, I'm like, this is too good of a moment. You know, everyone's happy. Right. I'm not making everyone shed a tear crying. <laughs> That's funny. So what was your like? So what's your transition to life after sports been like in terms of like you talk about these low points that you can count, you know, on like mm-hmm. two hands or or whatever. Um, 
how do you kind of work through those those instances and you know kind of reframe your mindset and not think about the what ifs and and mm-hmm. stuff like that? You know, I still always think about where I would be today. That's what have been my belief if I would have made it to the NFL. You know, this would be my fifth training camp already coming up. Yep, fifth year in the NFL. I think about that every day. You know, but you know where I go when I when I get down like when I wish I could do something. Honestly, I think about the people I've met over the years now that have it. Ten times worse than me, you know, that people that that wish that they were in my position. It's crazy to say that. I wish that they were sharing their story, you know. Right. Being able to do a podcast like this, but I know thousands of people that would love to be able to do this. So when I think about my situation, I get down. I'm like, you know what? I don't have it bad. Look at my house I live in. Look at the car that I have people driving me in. Look at the life that I'm living, you know. People would die for this. Yeah, focus life. on what you and have, And it makes right? me realize, you know what? I don't have it that bad at all. So stop, you know. Get up and be like, what am I complaining about? People have it 10 times worse than you are. They're better at it right now. Meanwhile, you're out here traveling the world with your friends and things like that. You right. Know? Makes me, it brings me back into shape real quick. Like Eric and David Vavora have pointed out, everyone faces a mountain, and you can't marginalize the steepness or the peak of that mountain. But my hope is that some of these 100 episodes remind you to practice gratitude along your journey like Eric does. If you've enjoyed any or all of these 100 episodes, I encourage you to go over to iTunes and leave us a review or share some of your favorite episodes with your friends. These reviews help us spread our message further and further and so we can help more and more athletes down the road. Thanks again for helping me get to 100 episodes and here's to 100 more.